On this week's Securiosity, we break down the latest moves from the White House on election security. We'll also talk to John Prisco from Quantum Exchange and the future of encryption. Foreign hackers thrown in jail, Mac App Store shenanigans, and a week's worth of funding all ahead for you right now. Let's go! Welcome to the latest edition of Securiosity. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jenna Daniel, back again for another week's worth of security news. Greg, another week capped off by election security news. Election security news, which obviously leads to talk about Russia, which obviously leads to talk about Russian hackers, which obviously leads to talking about hacking groups, which leads to talk about breaches, and then leads us to talk about products made to stop those breaches. It's all connected. Let's tell everyone how to the news. The big news this week is that President Donald Trump has signed an executive order authorizing sanctions against any foreign entity attempting to interfere in U.S. elections. Some sanctions would be automatic in cases where federal investigators identified meddling, White House officials said. The executive order requires the Office of the Director of National Intelligence to make regular assessments about potential foreign interference within 45 days of the election. It also asked for reports by DOJ and DHS in cases of interference with election campaign-related infrastructure. The order immediately came upon bipartisan criticism, with Senators Marco Rubio and Chris Van Hollen saying the order recognizes a threat but does not go far enough to address it. Greg, does it go far enough? I would have to agree with Senators Rubio and Van Hollen in that it doesn't go far enough. But, I mean, it doesn't go far enough right now because there's not enough definitive evidence put in the executive order on what exactly the actions would be other than sanctions. I mean, yes, the sanctions are put in place, but this is very vague. And it's it's vague in the process because, yes, there are these regular assessments, but it, it's vague about the assessments, but also vague about what exactly interference gets labeled as. I mean, it, that's really going to be such an interesting use case as if this ever comes up again because we're going to have argument after argument after argument over was this meddling i mean think back to what happened in 2016 we're still having arguments about was this really was this really meddling i mean yes the intelligence community has come out and said that russia was responsible for a, a host of of different things but You know, the line has been that no votes were changed, and right there you get into a vagary. Like, does election meddling mean that votes were changed? Does it mean that it's just a manipulation? It's a good PR move. Yeah, but it's a typical one in that it is the easiest thing to do without looking like that you've done nothing, which is I feel like (laughs) this has happened a lot with cybersecurity in Washington when it comes to policy. We were just talking about it last week in terms of the way that the North Korean complaint was rolled out. Yes, you have to do something. I get it. But I think this is another case of not just not doing enough, but leaving it wide open to vagaries. And then when the vagaries get put in place, nothing does happen. So, Well, hopefully this will lead to um exact instructions. I I mean, I hope it does, because I think if this happens again, you are going to see a lot more people being a lot more angry about it. And you aren't going to have room to just 
move the needle a little bit. Like you're going to need to take definitive action. The the government is going to have to act and it's have to going to be something more than just an executive order. But I will say, I hope that that doesn't happen. L- let's just have a regular democratic election and we don't have, right. we don't have to worry yeah. about uh, exercising this executive order anytime soon. So in a letter sent to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, a bipartisan group of senators want to know why the State Department is woefully behind on hitting various federal cybersecurity benchmarks. The letter, which you can read on cyberscoop.com, hits the department for a lack of multi-factor authentication use and failing to gather information related to its high-value assets. While certainly not a silver bullet, multi-factor authentication is a simple step that makes it significantly harder for foreign governments and criminals to access accounts, the letter reads. Jen, how many companies could you introduce to the State Department that could help them fix this problem? Oh, probably a hundred. But I think the issue is probably a little bit bigger, right? I mean, it's, I think, hard for anyone just to buy a technology and sort of implement it and make it work with everything they have. And my guess is they need something more along the lines of a system integrator to take a bunch of different technologies and, and put them into what they have now. Yes, this is not just a small business that can buy a password manager right. and throw yeah. some apps on a phone and, and call it a day. That being said, I feel like time and time again over the past five or six years, the State Department has been woefully behind on this stuff. So it's not like this hasn't been front of mind for people. What makes it very hard, and I've talked to some people at the State Department that deal with this, what makes it very hard is the federated nature of the State Department. You're talking about embassies everywhere. And that matters. The State Department has to oversee that. Just pulling a location off the top of my head, What's it like trying to set up a server in Marrakesh inside some type of agency? What is it like trying to set it up in Kuala Lumpur or, you know, not every place is London or Tokyo or, or, you know, the developed world. That federation, I think, makes things very, very hard. Probably expensive. Hard and expensive still at the same time, like this report that the letter references with the Government Accountability Office and what goes on at OMB. This is a problem that really should see more strides than just having uh, an 11% benchmark when it comes to multi-factor or not being able to um, gather high-value assets. Like, look, using another metaphor, the needle has moved and the State Department needs to do a little bit more here. So while it is difficult, I I, I do think that the senators do have a right to describe it as uh, woeful right now. So hopefully it changes. So let's move on to Russia. So Russian national Peter Leveshev pleaded guilty to controlling one of the world's largest ever botnets known as Kilios. First indicted more than a decade ago under different cybercrime allegations, Leveshev was known as the Spam King before his arrest in Spain in 2017. His attainment punctuated an expanding interest from U.S. law enforcement in arresting indicted Russian cybercriminals when they leave their home country. The battle to extradite Leveshev mirrored others that have been taking place around the world in the last several years between Moscow and D.C. Greg, what have we learned? So we've learned just a ton about how these extremely large spam botnets work. I mean, Leveshev has been operating since 2010. I mean, he's been around for a while. And the end game was... Spam, password theft, malware spreading, 
stock schemes. I mean, it was pretty now it would be considered just your run of the mill cyber crimes, but back in 2010, 2011, this this was, was really big, yeah. like yeah, this was big. This was a extremely extremely huge deal. And also, you know, I I will say what we've learned too is that Russian and Eastern European hackers like to travel and they should probably stop because the minute they set <laughs> forth right. uh, the, or the minute they set foot into a country that we have a good relationship with and they have warrants out for their arrest, those countries are cooperating, right. whether it's through Interpol or the legal attaches that the FBI has in different countries. Um, yeah, we will move on hackers if we have a beat on where they are. So Stay out of uh, Barcelona. Stay away from any of the nice spots on the Mediterranean <laughs> Sea if you've operated a botnet because you're probably going to see the inside of a U.S. district court at some point. <laughs> so to more consumer-facing news, cybersecurity giant Trend Micro has apologized after researchers discovered that a number of the company's consumer-facing apps were collecting users' browser histories. Thomas Reed, the lead for Mac and Mobile at Malwarebytes, published research last week that discovered a number of Mac OS apps were exfiltrating sensitive data to servers controlled by the developer. A number of these apps are owned and operated by Trend Micro. With regard to one app in particular, Reed found the app was pulling complete browsing and search history from Chrome, Firefox, Safari, and the Mac App Store. Additionally, the app also created a file that contained detailed information about every application found on the system. Jen, makes you question again how secure Apple's App Store can be, no? Sure. I guess I still sort of expect that that data is collected by everything that I use. Yeah, and at the same time, though, Apple does go out of its way to limit the amount of data that is collected here. And this is a pretty flagrant it violation is. of the way that Apple has things set up. But again, so this research was kind of part and parcel with the story that we talked about last week mm -hmm. regarding the uh, Mac app that was sending things to China as far as browser histories and, yeah. and user location and stuff like that. Uh, I, I think that this is a little bit better and the fact that this was tied to a huge cybersecurity company and they came out and said, look, we're sorry, this was a reuse of a code library, uh, this was our bad, um, and we're going to fix this. And they have, and whether it was Apple that kicked these apps off the store, it was Trend Micro themselves, there seems to be a little bit more inertia into fixing the problem more so than what we saw last week with this app that was top of the charts, yet there was no explanation yeah, on why this history was going to China. Like, that's bad. Yeah, but where there's two, there's a dozen more. And I'm sure that there will be other instances of this happening. It, but again, it, it goes to show that even with all of the tight restrictions Apple has on its app stores, things fall through the cracks. I'm shaking my head at the next story. So the energy sector got a fresh reminder of supply chain security risks after software giant Schneider Electric warn customers that it ships malware-laced USB drivers with two of its products. The USBs contained informational material and not operational software, the company said, also cautioning that common antivirus scanners would detect and block the malware. Brian L. Singer, an industrial control system expert, advised against using USB drives to distribute informational material because the drives can be susceptible to supply chain compromises. I think Singer was underselling that advice. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is 101. This should be Enterprise 101. I don't 
understand why you would even use a USB drive to be sending this stuff anymore. Don't plug in USB drives that you don't buy yourself. There's that, but also just the cloud. Like, how many times do you send files back and forth? Like, when is the last time that you've actually used a USB drive? I don't... I, I haven't I have used one. them. I mean, I have them as well, but and, and there's also a trust with that to, from a supply chain standpoint to make there sure is. that when we go to Staples or Office Depot that we're buying something that hasn't been backdoored here typically and we just don't know it. Right. But from an enterprise standpoint, again, just thinking back to the cloud and the way the Dropbox and Box and all the cloud services or all the services that we have online to send files back and forth, like we're not putting USB drives in the mail. Like, it's okay. Like, you can set up box instances pretty easily, I'm sure. Aaron Levy and the gang or the Dropbox and the gang will be happy to help Snyder Electric out with their back office business stuff. Like, just if if your company is still using USB drives in order to do stuff like this, even if it's, again, just informational material, not operational software, stop it. Just just stop it. Mm-hmm. It's cool. F- find a different way. You'll, you'll be... You'll be pleasantly, pleasantly re- rewarded with how your security team turns around and goes, thank you. Thank you for not making me worry about <laughs> USB drives. So faith-based groups recently became the latest sector to get an information and sharing and analysis organization to better shield itself from hackers. The faith-based ISAO is a recognition of the growing threats to digitized congregations, churches, and charities, which often collect personal and financial information from members and donors. The new ISAO, which is open to U.S. citizens of all faiths, promotes a sensor-informed system and a user interface that integrates threat intelligence directly with your network on its website. Jen, are you ready to see threat intel inside the tabernacle? (laughs) Look, you have to be safe everywhere, right? It doesn't matter what kind of organization you have. You're open to attacks. Yeah, um, and just... I think about it from the terms of look at what's going on with the Catholic Church right now. They would be a prime target for somebody along the lines of a hacktivist. Like they're dealing with some problems and they're dealing with some very, very angry people. So it would not be outside the realm of logic to say, okay, they're probably getting hit somewhere in the Vatican or maybe somewhere in America where a diocese has a system set up. It's a given. So, so yeah, it, it is a given, and it's totally um, well within the realm that they would set up you know, this organization so they can share threat intelligence back Back and forth. I mean, this was the vision when ISALs were stood up under the Obama administration a couple yeah. of years ago, that they would have you would have these disparate groups that are never going to be deemed critical infrastructure, but are going to come together and realize that eh, we probably have, you know, a threat vector and we should all talk to one another to make sure that we're sharing common information and, you know, sharing common problems that we all deal with in this unique thing that we do. So good on them for, for yeah, starting something important. up here. It's, it's absolutely important. We should be coming together as groups and, and looking for breaches. So talking about hacking rings, a hacking ring known as Magecart was behind the recent breach of the British Airways website and app that affected 380,000 transactions. The criminal group is best known for online card skimming or using malicious scripts to steal digital payment data. Indicators led RiskIQ to blame Magecart for the breach, which took place between August 21st and September 5th. The British Airways hack is a highly targeted approach compared to what we've seen in the past with Magecart Skimmer and Jonathan Klinsma, 
Risk IQ's head researcher. Do we have a Fin7 replacement? <laughs> um, uh, I don't think that they are that high yet, but I mean, this looks to be the same group, or I shouldn't say the same group. This looks to be the same software that was used to hit ticket British Ticketmaster a couple weeks ago. So it's clear that somebody has found a new little toy and has decided that they're going to go around and try to find different ways to pop different sites and, you know, gather uh, credit cards. This is, you know, standard cybercrime stuff. So um, Fin7's replacement, maybe a Carbonac copy, kind of. Um, I'm I'm sure that there are a lot smarter listeners out there that can talk about, you know, whether there's a similarity or difference with Magecart or Carbonac. But, um, you know, once we talk about it in terms of what happened with the British Ticketmaster, once is, you know, it happens now twice that we're seeing this software pop up. This is a trend, so I would not be surprised if we're talking about Mage Cart in future episodes. Now to Venture Capital Corner, some really interesting funding rounds this week. First, San Francisco-based CoreLight announced a $25 million Series B funding round, filling its coffers to boost its efforts in commercializing the open-source Bro Network Security Monitor. Developed in 95, Bro was created to study complex patterns in internet traffic and high-performance environments. Think large companies, financial companies, government agencies. And speaking of government agencies, it's been supported by a host of them, including grants from the National Science Foundation. CoreLight has built its products on top of Bro, giving agencies and large enterprises a way to make sense of the traffic they see on a daily basis. And then later this week, another San Francisco-based company, Sysdig, announced a $68.5 million Series D funding round, doubling the amount of money the company has previously raised for its container monitoring and security offerings. Launched in 2013, the company specializes in platforms that help developers handle vulnerability management, compliance checks, and security analytics in containers and microservices. Containers have been a huge deal in application development world for a while. The popular infrastructure tech gives developers a way to run applications in a consistent manner across a host of different environments without wasting computing resources or accumulating large run costs. Jen, you're the VC expert here. Which one of these is most interesting to you? So I guess the first one is, I think, um, you know, on the second one, on, on Sysdig, containers are still a hot space, especially in the growth stage. Last month, we saw um, one of the competitors, Twishlock, raise $33 million bucks, also doubling its capital. Um, but my guess is StackRox um, is going to win the IC business, um, given their Inkytel investment earlier this year. Um, and then on the first one, I should mention that BroCon is happening in D.C. Um, in October, um, for you that are interested in, in sort of that open network there, um, completely unfortunate name back in <laughs> 1995 when it was named. Did, did not see <laughs> us uh, turning it into a, a piece of slang. <laughs> right? Right. But, um, no, it, you know, it, going back to what you're talking about with Cystic, it's really interesting that, um, you know, you say that, uh, you know, you talk about the stack rocks and the threat lock and everything here, it's really interesting from the standpoint to me that you say that um, StackRox is more based in the IC world, where Sysdig seems to be focused more on the enterprise world. I feel like, do you think that that is just by market determination, or do you think that 
the government would rather have stack rocks for other reasons, and then Sysdig is just happy, you know, going after everybody else. I mean, you know, look, I think the the real money in any of this stuff is going to be in in sort of the the commercial space. Um, you know, certainly the IC community is is just tougher to to sell into. Um, and you know, having not dug into any of these three companies technology wise, I you know I don't know that one is better situated for it. Um, but by just by virtue of Incutel sort of making a bet and sort of knowing how um, they invest and how it's um, sometimes um, really sort of pre-buying um, product for the IC community, um, you know, my guess is they've picked um, StackRocks, you know, for a reason, um, you know, which they probably will only know or their investors will probably also know. But Yeah, I mean, it, this is a really interesting space to watch because I – at any conference, whether it's a cybersecurity conference or anything else, I swear I, I get pulled into a conversation about containerization. Yeah. And I I understand it. I am not a developer. I'm not an application engineer or anything like that. But I the, the passion by which people talk about containers is on a level that I, I, I don't see it with a lot of other stuff out there. So I imagine that the money is going to keep flowing in this direction and the security parts are still going to get their share of the pie. But it's so interesting that I just don't see um, any sort of seed in early stage container place. Um, and so if you don't know, I invest in seed in early stage companies, mostly cybersecurity. And so on any given year, I'm seeing... Just by virtue of Mach 37, I think I see most things um, at a really early stage, and they just don't tend to be in this sector. That's interesting. Do you think that's just because Docker has just capitalized the market so much? Because I will say, with those, with the conversations that I do have about containers, it's always talked about through Docker. Yes. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I think that might be it, right? I think there's some, obviously, some really big players here um, that are, you know, pretty new themselves. You know, it's these technologies haven't been around a really long time. So I just think it's sort of the answer a little bit for now. So that's it for the news. Now to our interview with John Prisco, CEO of Quantum Exchange. John talks to us about where quantum encryption is heading, how he uses physics background to start his company, and some super nerdy stuff about space travel. Check it out. Okay, we're here today talking with John Prisco, the president and CEO of Quantum Exchange. And John does some really interesting stuff. He's the maker of unbreakable quantum safe network encryption. And I could talk about quantum and computing and quantum encryption for a while. So I'm glad that you're here today, John. Oh, it's good to be here. So tell us more about Quantum Exchange. We're addressing an impending crisis with secure data transmission and, in fact, generally secure communications. And we're doing that by encrypting data with quantum keys, which are photonic keys that cannot be broken. If they're observed, they basically disintegrate. So if someone's trying to eavesdrop on your secure transmission, the key no longer works because the key changes its quantum state. And that's a basic property of physics. So. We're relying on a, on a law of physics, whereas current um, encryption relies on solving a difficult math problem. And computers have been proven over the years to be able to solve those difficult math problems. So while we want to get into a, a lot of that, you know, you were talking about physics 
there and the difference between physics and computer security, you know, we deal a lot with computer security and computer engineers, but your background is in physics. So talk to us about that background a little bit because that's really interesting to me. Tell us what drew you to that field and how you found yourself using physics in the work that you have been doing. Well, it, it goes back a long way. When I was 14, I asked my parents if I could have a laser for Christmas. Okay. And, uh, and they got it for me. Um, and ever since then, I've been involved with quantum electronics, quantum optics. Uh, I spent the first half of my career uh, building fiber optic networks, competing with the telephone company in what was called the CLEC or competitive local exchange company market, and um, went to grad school, studied more quantum physics. Now this is the culmination of security and optics for me, so it's a, it's a great position to be in. So let's discuss the race that seems to be going on between China, Russia, and the U.S. to reach computer superiority. Why does it matter that we attain quantum computing first? Well, it really matters, and I can give you two primary examples that occurred recently. Uh, the first one is personal to me. It was the OPM breach where all my secret data was stolen and I got a LifeLock subscription for three years. Uh, the second was the Lockheed Martin uh, F-35 plans that were stolen. So uh, what's happening is that uh, nefarious actors are stealing data. They may not be able to read that data today. So, you know, somebody hasn't taken a mortgage out in my name as a result of the OPM breach yet. But um, it's cheap to store data. And when quantum computers are available, they're going to be able to break the keys that are associated with that encryption. And they're going to be able to break them in minutes, as opposed to today's computers that will take a billion, billion years to break them. So once you have the keys to the kingdom, uh, anything that you think is secure is really just plain text, and there will be no secrets unless we do something about it. And that's what we're here to talk about. How close are we? Well, you know, there's a, a lot of debate about that. We have some really great companies working on it. Uh, I, I bet on them, people like IBM and Microsoft and Google. Google announced in February a 72-qubit quantum computer, which is getting fairly close to the quantum supremacy mark, although, you know, they've got a little ways to go. Uh, a few years ago, I might have said 10 to 20 years. Now I think I'm going to say something like three to five, and Google is saying that. But that doesn't really determine when you have to take action. You have to take action now because data will continually be stolen. There are no cybersecurity products that will prevent it because there are too many wild cards in the equation. People. You know, people click on things all the time. And, you know, there's so much information about you out there on Facebook that it's pretty easy to socially engineer someone into making a mistake. So data being stolen is a given. Now what you have to do is say, okay, they're going to get my data, but I'm going to make it so that that data becomes basically unusable. And to do that, I have to do a better job of encryption. So let's back up a little bit here and, and 
dive technically into what you do. Explain what quantum safe encryption really is and how it will secure the future that we're heading toward and how it sort of differs from the encryption that we have right now. Okay, so we're doing something very basically different and that is we're creating keys that are made of light. So we're actually sending single photons down optical fiber. And these fibers are what one might be considering calling them a quantum channel. Um, we receive those photons at the other end and we can determine whether they've been uh, eavesdropped upon. Because if they have, the, the ones and zeros that we sent will no longer be ones and zeros when they're received. So, you know, this is, and I'm fond of saying I fail if I mention the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, but <laughs> this is the basic physics law that says if you try to observe a quantum particle like a photon, you'll change its state forever and it, it won't be anything like it was originally. So, you know, we're basing it on that law of physics as opposed to solving a difficult math problem, which is what today's quantum, I mean, today's encryption keys are based upon. You know, let's take a really, really big number and factor it into two prime numbers. Well, it takes today's computers, as I mentioned, a billion, billion years to do that. Quantum computer is going to do that in a matter of minutes. So if all the current encrypted data is at risk to the advancement of quantum computing, what sort of timeline do you see for the commercial notation of dark fiber networks? Well, we are putting those networks in play now. You know, we're building a quantum network as a start from Washington, D.C. up to Boston. And in the next 60 days, we'll be activating the first leg of that, which connects downtown Manhattan with New Jersey. And we'll be offering commercial service, quantum keys, unlimited quantum keys over those fiber links. That's incredible. I mean, I, that's... You know, as your commercial portfolio sort of builds out, you know, whether it's the commercial side, the financial sector, critical infrastructure, the government, you know, obviously these entities want to have unbreakable security for businesses and they want to make sure government entities have them too. It seems like a no-brainer. And we talk about the race that we're having with China when it comes to this, but we're also having a race with China when it comes to 5G. So with 5G on the way, is there a more public-facing use case for quantum-safe encryption when it, especially with 5G coming online relatively soon? Well, definitely. Uh, you know, I think you'll see this applied in more and more commercial applications. Um, you mentioned 5G. So certainly today you'd be able to encrypt the data that's being transmitted from cell tower sites uh, and among a mesh network of those sites. So, um, you know, that, that is certainly what companies are planning to do now. Uh, there's a pretty timely application of this going on right now with our Swiss partner, ID Quantique in Geneva. They are securing the data links in their election network. So, you know, if you're transmitting uh, bulk election data uh, from a polling place to a central aggregation point, you could imagine how important it would be to make sure that that data wasn't in any way affected or changed. You know, it's a pretty timely problem here in the United States as well. So, uh, you know, that's a very practical application that could be used uh, anywhere. 
Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting to me. Do you think that pie in the sky that this type of encryption could eventually allow for, for something like fully online voting? Uh, I think you'd have to have at least unbreakable encryption to do that. So, you know, it has to be a component of it. Very, very interesting. So what else should people be looking for besides quantum computing? What else is out there that we should be scared of? Well, you know, I think we're always faced with the fact that no matter how much money you spend and how good your cyber hygiene is, the weakest link is us. And, you know, uh, there is so much that occurs uh, that we don't hear about, and we hear about a lot, but generally speaking, it's next to impossible to prevent breaches from happening, and that's why you know, you have a very robust cybersecurity business going in the United States and around the world. But uh, generally speaking, um, if it's something really important to you, if it's data that has a long shelf life, like healthcare data, uh, I'd be afraid of that, and I would be looking to people who are going to try to protect uh, your data with some better form of encryption. So let's switch gears for a second. You have an extensive background of working with many successful companies. What advice do you have for somebody that might be looking to break into, you know, the bleeding edge, like something that you do with quantum encryption or stuff that is really five, ten years from being like mainstream practical application wise? Well, I think uh, it's very important to get proper training. So I would look for a university that specializes in this sort of thing. Um, but the bottom line is you have to feel passionate about it for it to work. And it's sort of in your DNA or it isn't. So, you know, a lot of people are comfortable in large companies. A lot of people are uncomfortable in large companies. I prefer to sign the front of the check. So most <laughs> of my career, has been involved with startup companies. But, but I think if you love what you're doing and you've got the training in a field that is burgeoning, uh, that's the best way to, to get into a new startup and, and to have fun. Are there any startups out there that you've been seeing that we should be looking at? Uh, gee, you know, there are so many that uh, are in the space that I'm familiar with, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also... Uh, pretty interested in carbon nanotubes and that sort of thing and 3D printing and you know those are all cutting edge technologies that I think have a have a lot of legs. Tell us more about carbon nanotubes. Oh my goodness. I'm not an expert <laughs> not an expert, but some of the things they tell you about those uh, technologies are their ability to build massively tall structures like elevators that could go to the moon and <laughs> it's sort wow, of okay but I'm, I'm, I'm way out of my uh, my area of expertise okay. there but you know there there's a lot of universities that have wonderful programs like my alma mater Columbia and my other alma mater MIT so uh, if you're looking for good schools to go to I recommend those two so with what you're doing with your company I imagine there's a lot of government interest with what you're doing so I'm wondering from your perspective right now, what's it like being a startup and working with the government, whether it is in the research side where you're working with maybe the national laboratories or DARPA, 
or what is it like working with these bigger agencies, maybe somebody in the intelligence community or the DOD who would want to, you know, encrypt their work with the defense industrial base. They clearly want technology like you have. So I'm wondering what's it like when you're working with a company that's only 20, 25 people and then the U.S. government calls. What do you do? Well, you know, I've been pleasantly surprised over my career that uh, the federal government has been pretty receptive to companies like the ones I've been running. Um, you know, they are more interested in ideas and technology than size. And, you know, often innovation comes from small companies. It's, it's harder to be an innovator in a, in a huge company. So my experiences have been great in uh, both the Department of Defense and in the intelligence community, and even in the um, civilian part of the government. So um, we've had really good success over the years, and it, it takes time, uh, and experience helps. But uh, I wouldn't ever recommend that smaller companies don't go after that market, because I think it's a great market. So finally, we ask all of our guests one random question outside of all of the cybersecurity stuff that we talk about. You have a physics background, so I'm wondering who's your favorite physicist? Einstein, Newton, Galileo? Oh, boy. Somebody else? Well, I'd be foolish if I didn't say Heisenberg. Okay. There you go. Okay. Interesting. I would have figured that Einstein's such, you know, the OG in the space that I would have expected well, you to say Einstein. He's a great but... one, too. Well, I want to know how many years you think it's going to take us to take carbon nanotubes to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> that is just, an un I'm unqualified. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, for the qualified stuff, for the quantum encryption stuff, we will definitely chat back with you, John. So thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, John. You. Thank you. Thanks to John for a very scientific <laughs> interview. So Heisenberg, is that like the Walter White Heisenberg? So funny you should ask because I, I figured that was the namesake when he said it. And let's break it down because I'm not sure that everybody out there is familiar with the rosters of physics luminaries throughout history. <laughs> so the Heisenberg that he's talking about is Warner Heisenberg. And the big thing for this Heisenberg was the theory of uncertainty, which says – you know, basically, the more you narrow down particles or the more that you examine things on an atomic level, um, they actively resist being studied and that basically everything gets thrown into this really weird, like, chaos layer and things get turned upside down and don't make sense. So as I was reading this great article that pieced together why Walter White's alter ego was named Heisenberg, and I will put a link in the show notes for everybody to this article that helps explain the connection, um, this is a great way to think about the uncertainty principle that Heisenberg created. Uh, in layman terms, it says that once you delve inside the atom and into the weird, weird realm populated by gluons, quarks, and bosons, the universe is basically a gigantic troll face grinning back at you through the electron microscope asking, you mad? Well, I guess it's 2018, so everything comes back to a meme. The true cultural currency of our times, you are not making sense unless you can translate something into a meme. That will wrap it up for this week. Thanks for joining us. As always, stay curious.